welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Kathleen Clausen, Associate Professor at the University of Miami School of Law and a non-resident senior fellow at the Georgetown Institute of International Economic Law. She previously served as Associate General Counsel at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative from 2014 to 2017. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. It's, um, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I've learned a lot from past episodes, so it's, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Well, it's, it's very exciting for me to have you here. You are doing some really interesting research, leading a team doing research on trade executive agreements. Um, and I think this is going to be a really informative episode for myself and, and our listeners. So I'd like to start by asking you what these agreements are and why you're researching them. You know, those who follow trade headlines closely have likely seen reference to the idea of mini trade deals over the last couple of years. And some of the high profile ones have been um, the U.S.-Japan deals on agriculture and digital trade. But thanks to research by you and your team that is still ongoing, we know that these mini deals are far more prevalent than probably a lot of people realize These are formally called Trade Executive Agreements, or TEAs. They don't require congressional approval, and about 1,200 of them have been concluded in the last 40 years. So let's start by defining trade executive agreements. What are they, and what compelled you to begin this research project? Great. Well, um, again, thanks for the chance to talk about these that are are near and dear to my heart. Uh, Trade executive agreements is the the term that that I developed to try to understand them a little bit better and to draw emphasis to the fact that they are done by the executive branch, right? They are deals that govern trade flows into or out of the United States that U.S. agencies conclude with foreign partners. Um, And they do that without congressional approval after the fact. So these sorts of deals are everywhere. (laughs) They're somewhat obvious, but also somewhat really hard to find. Uh, So so how can that be so? Well, uh, we've known that there's a sort of a common understanding in in at least among foreign relations folks that there's this this regulatory turn in our foreign relations, right? That we, we do all sorts of deals now that manage the way in which our government works and and indeed how some private actors work. But what we haven't really appreciated is what that means for trade law, right, and and its institutions, and just how far these stretch, like what exactly do they do? So with respect to what that means for trade law, I mean, some would say there can be no such thing as as a trade executive agreement, because according to the Constitution, right, Congress regulates foreign commerce. But we know that Congress has, of course, over the years, delegated a lot of that authority to the executive branch. Now, we tend to think about delegations to change tariff rates, for example, right? We've seen that a lot uh, lately, the Section 301 tariffs on products from China, Section 232 tariffs uh, related to steel and aluminum. Those are the types of delegations with which we're familiar. We're also familiar with delegations to negotiate big trade deals that get congressional approval after the fact, right, through fast track uh, trade promotion authority. So so we hear about those, USMCA, the tariffs, et cetera. Um, Here, though, no approval after negotiation, right? There's there's the the authority to go go negotiate them, 
but they don't come back like something like USMCA would. So what do they do? Um, you know, you, you call them sort of mini deals, right? We call them mini skinny. I've heard all sorts of different names for them. That's part of one of the interesting features here. Like nobody really knows what, what to call them. Right? If you look at some of the reporting on the Japan deal that you mentioned, right? The, the media is kind of like, what, what are these? Like, we don't really know what to call them because when you compare them to USMCA, like everybody knows what that is, but, but these are a lot, a lot harder to find. So we, we kind of take them for granted. And I'll just give one example, um, and, and we could talk uh, more about this. But um, like, if you take a, a tomato, right? This this is um, I like to use a tomato because everybody can sort of understand that the law applicable to a tomato coming into the United States will include some statutes, regulations, right? The Food Safety Modernization Act, right, is one that we we know well. But but many listeners will know also that major parts of what I call the international produce canon uh, consists of agreements. Um, and, and those are agreements that are concluded between maybe the USDA, right? And its counterpart in the tomatoes country of origin. And those might cover topics as specific as what sorts of treatment methods the tomato receives while it's still very far away. Um, it's processing and it's storage, it's labeling and it's packaging. What, under what conditions it can be sold in our local supermarkets, right? These sorts of agreements are what we're talking about here. And, and they really are the backbone of the rules uh, that govern not just tomatoes, but everything uh, to, from tomatoes to titanium, telecommunications, trousers, and, and even things uh, beyond the letter T. So what compelled you then to begin this research project, Kathleen? Yeah, well, I, you know, I had started researching them out, out of curiosity, frankly. I, I um, had my time at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office at USTR. I had helped to negotiate a few of these myself. I had the agriculture portfolio and um, remember clearly uh, working on some uh, exchanges of letters uh, that had to do with chickens uh, and how we certify you know, certain chickens to be healthy when they're coming in from other parts of, of the world. Uh, and so I, I kind of knew that they were out there. And then in these last few years, starting to see them being deployed in, in new and interesting ways, um, but not seeing a lot, of, a lot of analysis to go to go with that, uh, led me to, to want to investigate. So I realized we didn't really have a good grip on what's out there, as, as was evidenced by that sort of lack of, of a name that I mentioned before. Um, and, and we certainly didn't have a grip on, on where they fit into our trade law system. So so got into that, and before we knew it, my, my team, uh, and I should say without whom this would not be possible at all, and the team is, uh, has just been instrumental in, in finding all of these with me. We, we, have, we found hundreds and hundreds more, uh, and, uh, and that's, where we, that's how we got to where we are. Okay, so I've read some of your research on this that you're starting to publish, and you found that in 2020 alone, so last year alone, the United States entered into 32 different commercial agreements with foreign trading partners. Some of them changed tariff rates, some made new rules, some established new regulatory processes. And you've also found that about one third of these agreements are not available to the public or even to Congress. So what can you tell us about some of the deals made last year that we haven't heard about? Yeah, so last year, a banner year, 32 <laughs> that, that we know of, right? Mm -hmm. The average is usually about 20 a year, uh, in, at least in, in recent years. Um, and so in that group of, of 2020 deals, uh, apart from the ones that we've discussed that you, you know hit the headlines, um, have you heard of the, the deal with Costa Rica on conformity assessment procedures for new pneumatic tires, for example, or 
or the exchange of letters with Bolivia on the Bolivian distilled spirit uh, called Singani. Th those are just two of the lesser known uh, agreements. We've had lots of letters exchanged with Canada, Mexico, and Japan, some of which were sort of on the sidelines of the bigger deals that were being done with those, with those partners. Um, an agreement with the UK on, on wine, uh, another with uh, the UK on, on marine equipment. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned some of these are, are called exchanges of letters, side letters, um, the word agreement. It, the naming conventions really are diverse across the, the collection. Um, and, and, it, and frankly, that, that range of, of titles can make it hard to figure out what's actually in this collection, what should be in here. Um, and, and so what you find when you add all those up is uh, in total, the United States has these TEAs with 130 countries. Right? Um, that list is pretty top heavy. Um, the top five governments alone account for about a third of TEAs. And so those are Japan, Mexico, South Korea, Canada and the European Union. So they, they take up quite a few. Um, and you can see just from those examples, right? It's, it's some of those are, are partners with whom we have FTAs and, and some of them are, are not. Um, and then you've got 46 countries of the 130 where we just have one uh, TEA with them. So, so a, a real range. Um, and they cover the waterfront of topics, um, everything from customs arrangements, right? Something that's squarely uh, trade, uh, uh, centric, um, food safety, insurance, tax, autos, right? just, just to name a few. Some of them are more cooperative, right? They, they intend to set up a dialogue with the other government on a trade-related issue, um, but others go much farther and, and seek to make changes to the regulatory processes that we have for U.S. goods and, and services. Um, so, so a range in countries, a range in topics, a range in labels, not as much range in um, durability, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, most of these were negotiated in the last 40 or so years. So um, they've, they've been around um, uh, and uh, most of them are still in force today. So we, we've seen a steady growth in the reach of some of these agreements uh, over time, but otherwise they've been pretty consistent year to year and they seem to never go out of force uh, from what we can tell. So these are long lasting, as I said, durable agreements. Okay, so as you and your team continue this project in tracking down these agreements, I understand that they can be very hard to find and some are entirely missing. Um, you have found that no government agency has a comprehensive collection of these agreements. And you even shared an interesting anecdote that, that I just have to share with our listeners that one former USTR official recalled an instance where an abbreviated summary of a, of a deal was jotted down in the margins of a map purchased at the gift shop of the negotiating venue and, and that there is no other record of that agreement. So yeah. <laughs> where are you and your team searching for these agreements? How are you going about tracking them down? And how concerning is this lack of a paper trail and transparency here? Oh, yes. Well, um, that, that's a great story, and it, it's not the only one of its type, right? When, when you consider uh, TEA's ubiquity, uh, this obscurity, it seems all the more perplexing, right? The, the transparency issues surrounding them are surely the most concerning uh, to the trade law community writ large. Uh, and that includes, I think, some of the, the members of the foreign commerce bureaucracy, that is some of our, our bureaucrats, who are trying to actually work with them, right? This is not just the outsiders looking in. Um, you know, they've been under the radar for a few reasons. 
Um, most important, I think, to that is, is the institutional system that we have now, which does not require that TEAs be made public. Um, there's some controversy over whether they even need, need to be reported to Congress. So that makes it easy to just negotiate them and, and operationalize them without doing much more, right? Without ever uh, letting anybody know uh, about some of them, at least. So every once in a while, you hear broadly about some of these deals, right? Of course, the, the phase one deal with, with China, so-called, uh, the, the Japan deals, uh, those are somewhat exceptional. But we don't hear about these sort of everyday, often very helpful ones, um, like my chicken letters, for example. <laughs> so some agencies, you know, I think they, they want to publicize them, right? They want to say, hey, you know, we got this great deal for our farmers, our ranchers, our producers, and, and others of them. Uh, so those are the ones that are easy to locate, right? You get the press release, woohoo, you know, and then the others just not so much. <laughs> so where did we where did we look to find them? Well, um, as, as you said, four, four agencies keep incomplete lists by, on their websites. So you can go to USTR, you go to Commerce Department, State Department, uh, International Trade Commission. Uh, they have various lists um, and you can find others on um, websites of USDA, uh, FDA and others, but they're not, those are not as systematic as, as the sort of central uh, agencies I mentioned. So, so we started with those. Um, we went through all of the, the agency websites uh, and, and took note of the ones we could find there. Um, USTR stands out in its role as trade policy coordinator and head of our trade agreements program, right, according to statute. Um, and in that role, it has to publish every year an annual report. And that annual report has, at least for, for several years, included an annex. Uh, the annex lists, it says, here are all the trade agreements that USTR is monitoring. And you can find several hundred there, right? In the 2019 annual report of USTR, uh, the annex lists 648 agreements of several different types. Um, but you know, when we started looking on the USTR website, we found an additional more than 200 other agreements that were listed somewhere on the website. So, so to be sure, the lists are imperfect. Uh, and I would say the same, same about state and commerce and, and ITC is not to, not to pick on USTR. So we knew we had to go beyond the government websites. We started looking in press releases, uh, presidential proclamations sometimes refer to them, uh, academic articles, of course, the Federal Register, you sometimes see a reference there. And that was, that was sort of step one, right? Step one was we had to figure out what's out there, just make the list. Step two <laughs> proved even more challenging is that was trying to find copies, right? To get actually the text of these agreements. And, and you might think they go hand in hand, but actually they don't. Uh, and so we, for that, we had to expand even more. We went to the National Archives, Congressional Research Service. We got some help from the Library of, of Congress. Uh, we reached out to other scholars who generously shared work that they had done. And, and actually, um, foreign governments uh, proved to be very helpful indeed. I happened to have contacts with a number of trade officials around the world um, and would reach out to them. Sometimes they found these, uh, sometimes they couldn't either. Um, and there's a great story that, you know, is, um, I've heard variations of this story from multiple people where the, we'd be, we'd be at a negotiation, right? Some US government officials at a negotiation, um, the government on the other side will say, hey, you know, maybe we should make reference to that 1987 agreement that we did on this topic. 
And no one on the US side will have heard of this or know that it exists. Right? And so that, that type of thing happens more frequently than we know and more frequently than it should. Um, so that even reaching out to these agencies directly and asking for a copy of the 1987 whatever agreement, uh, which we also did to be sure, you know, we, we checked with all these agencies for these lists, even that was insufficient. We knew it would be given these gaps that we had heard about. So finally, we also reached out to subscription services. These are paid uh, you know, sort of library collections. Hein Online is one, uh, Westlaw through Thomson Reuters and other. Uh, they, they, these sorts of paid services uh, gave us even more additional results that we couldn't find anywhere else. So it was really a combination of all of these sources that got us uh, the collection that we have. Uh, I will quickly add that we are still missing copies of about 200 agreements that we believe to exist. So, so we've got the, the 1,230 or so that we, um, we're we tracking, uh, 200 of them we don't have the, the copies, and we actually have several hundred more that we're still trying to process. So that's that's the process we had to undertake. And you may be wondering, uh, Joe, you know, what happened here? Like, what, what are the reasons for these disappearances? And, and in speaking with the officials um, who have been working on these, negotiating them, monitoring them, et cetera, Several different disconcerting causes uh, have come to light. Um, often you hear about institutional turnover, right? Somebody left the office and that just got lost. Uh, sometimes I would say that was before computers, but computers haven't really helped us because some officials would say that, well, in that technology migration, right? Everybody's been through this when, when your institution went from one system to another and something got lost, right? So, so in that tech, uh, technology migration, some of these agreements uh, may have been deleted by accident. Um, you know, some have said that there have been various capacity limitations, right? We were just so busy. It was all I could do to get to the next negotiation. I couldn't possibly stop and make sure that my paperwork got to the right channels, right? So, and I will say some people have said maybe this obscurity is also purposeful. Um, that is that some agencies are trying to hide these. That was the rare case, right? It's, there are clearly some record keeping failures within our trade administrative state. It's, it's no one's fault, uh, no particular person's fault, but the system is, is clearly lacking. And, and what's sad is that it's let down our folks when they need the help the most at the negotiating table. Fascinating. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the implications for this lack of transparency before I later ask you how you'd recommend maybe fixing it. But, you know, what are the implications of this for the business and agriculture communities if they if they don't know that these agreements exist, much less have the chance to weigh in as they are being negotiated, then how might that impact their businesses or their trust in the, the officials who are negotiating on their behalf? Sure, I, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head with respect to some of the concerns that the business community uh, has voiced on, on these issues. Uh, that is, how can one possibly engage in or control outcomes if, if we just don't have uh, the info? You know, that's been a problem. Some of these transparency issues have been a problem in trade for a long time, and not just on these small agreements, but also the big ones, right? You heard concerns about transparency uh, for big FTAs. Part of the reason USTR was created was to deal with some of, uh, of the interest group capture that, you know, that had been said to exist. But, but now we have new types of problems in the executive branch that have led to these same sorts of concerns. Um, and uh, you know, different, different strategies, I think, that some are undertaking to combat them. I'll just say one question I often get is, um, if, if no one knows about some of these, um, are they really being used? Like, is there really, should I really be concerned right, as, as a business person in, 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 my, in my work here in, in trade? 
Well, here's the thing. I mean, often industry absolutely knows about these where they apply to them, right? The, the individual agreement will be known to those who are most directly affected. Um, and, and so that, that at least is happening to some degree. Um, but because we're making trade law and policy in such small pieces through TEAs, sometimes it's difficult to get enough traction to build up pressure for change in that context. Now, that's not to say that we ought to be pushing back on these. I mean, to be sure, many of these deals I alluded to earlier, that they're market access creating. And there was an interesting exchange between Ambassador Lighthizer, the former USTR, and members of Congress uh, last year in a hearing where he said, look, you know, we're solving problems through these deals. So, you know, just sort of let us do our work. So, so there's likely to be some good happening for some communities and, and they should take advantage of those opportunities. But if I were a business, I would be wary uh, about where the winners and losers are being selected without my knowledge and input. And, and especially those that may have an indirect effect on me where I may not be able to be fully clued, clued in. Right? These are rulemaking tools. We usually allow and encourage public notice and comment on rules. Even in our big trade agreements, we have mechanisms for public feedback. We want the, the government to have the best information available. And, that, and that's hard to facilitate if the relevant groups are not involved or involved in or aware of the negotiations. Uh, also, the fact that these just get operationalized without much more um, could mean that later down the road, folks don't even know that the practices or the rules that they're using, that they have, that we have in effect, originated in a TEA. So whether it's as a matter of good governance, that we should just know what the government, what sorts of obligations the government's entering into, um, whether it's the fact that these do change the course uh, of business right, and affect opportunities for, for ranchers and farmers and industries and others, um, or whether it's a matter of accountability, that we just, we usually have a way to hold our government actors accountable for the work that they do. And this is one of those areas where those, those mechanisms uh, simply are, are not available. Those are, I think, reasons why the business and, and agricultural communities want to be paying attention. So you've identified a, a key question throughout this entire conversation that I think is really interesting and really at the heart of the difficulty in pinning down all of these trade executive agreements. And that is what constitutes a trade deal? What is a trade deal? And, and you mentioned the public comment processes that are set out in our laws when a major comprehensive free trade agreements being negotiated, but that's not the case with a lot of these um, TEAs. Um, and you mentioned also the uh, what you call the trade administrative state. You've done a lot of work on that as well, how our U.S. trade lawmaking is fragmented, dispersed across different government agencies. Um, you also mentioned the USDA earlier, and I want to hone in on something you wrote about um, using USDA as an example. Um, of one government agency that negotiates, in this case, agricultural trade agreements that govern the import, export, harmonization of agricultural products, and that those, at least in the USDA context, are called work plans. And although they may be negotiated in partnership with USTR, these work plans don't make the cut uh, for inclusion in USTR's annual report where all those trade agreements are listed in the annex. So my question for you is if USDA and perhaps other agencies are busy negotiating agreements that they don't consider to rise to the level of an executive agreement, then how can we really get a handle on the situation and, and who's responsible for defining what is a trade deal? Right. Okay. Big questions there. <laughs> yes. the, the short answer, right? Who, who's responsible? I mean, the short answer really constitutionally, of course, is Congress, um, but it's not a one-way street, right? It will take 
both branches uh, to address these questions. Um, and, and rightly so, right? And, and there's important work being done that if we knew about it, we might be able uh, to, to govern better, right? We might be able to at least address some of these problems. So, so Congress has started to recognize this um, and not just because there's an expectation that this administration perhaps more than others uh, will use these tools more. Right? We, we heard from President Biden that he's not interested, right? There's no appetite right now in big FTAs. And so one might think that if we're, if we're gonna be making advances in, in trade policy, it might be through these smaller deals. But it's also because the last administration started to push the boundaries again on, on that definition, right? on, on what exactly it is that the executive can do without congressional approval. So members of Congress are, are clearly ready to work with the executive on these, um, to write new legislation that would change the terms of engagement on, on some of these, um, not to make them overly complicated, uh, right, but to improve some of the mechanics, um, just so that we so that we know. As you point out, that that is no small task. There are so many different styles of agreements. We discussed earlier the different labels. Um, that now the the real challenge is crafting the language so that it again is not creating too much interference for this important work, but is also facilitating better understanding of the work that's being done. And in the absence of of TPA of Trade Promotion Authority, there's some time and space to look at these more thoroughly, right? Let's say, what does the rest of the trade law landscape look like? Uh, as we said, the, the argument for making these available is, is strong, even for those that are, are small or seemingly inconsequential. And so I think that work is gonna be taken up and, and we'll see uh, which, which direction the Congress wants to go with it. So if I could you know, ask you just a brief follow-up question there about Trade Promotion Authority, which expired as of July 1st, um, and that, yep. to remind our listeners, allows for um, Congress to consider uh, <clears throat> trade agreements that are negotiated by the executive branch on an expedited timeframe as long as certain consultation requirements, for example, um, are observed by the executive branch. So that has expired. Um, but I wonder if, if you know, how, do, do you think that, um, trade executive agreements and everything you're finding here and these issues that you've raised will be part of any you know, debate that there might be at such time that Congress decides to take a look at renewing TPA, writing a new TPA law. How do you think this, this work might figure into that kind of debate? Yeah, it's a great question. I sort of see three routes um, by which this work can be done. Um, on the one hand, TEAs could be addressed in a future TPA, right? So, so there's, there's building pressure on the Hill for renewing TPA so that we sort of get back in the game on big trade agreements, right? That's, you hear that now increasingly, uh, that is the, the tone. Um, and so if that, if that legislation were to come to pass and if that, that, that ramps up even more, then I would expect to see some treatment of TEAs within TPA. So that, so it could be that um, not a full TPA process, right? I don't think the expectation will be that all of these agreements need to go through congressional approval, but you can imagine things like greater consultation or uh, you know, requiring notice of some sort publicly and to the Congress in ways that's not happening now. And, and that would fit nicely with the general goals of TPA to facilitate the bi-branch uh, engagement on that. Another mm -hmm. route by which that could happen is in its own legislation, right? So the longer the administration doesn't want to pursue TPA and, and suggests that it's not, it's not gonna go down that road, um, that would not necessarily hold back the Congress from then 
putting either in its own legislation or, or tucking in somewhere else, uh, some of these same consultation mechanisms and, and engagement mechanisms on these agreements, like knowing that they're on the horizon, let's, let's try to take care of them through some other, through some other way. We, we realize they're important. And so we want to do that in, in its own space, right? Not tie it up with TPA that that could be a, a second path. And the third path um, could be with respect to the transparency issues. So there, there's a discussion, a separate discussion happening about transparency on non-trade agreements. Um, and uh, a number of folks concerned about the State Department's management uh, in, in that zone, the non-trade zone. And so there is now may, perhaps the opportunity to sort of marry up those discussions and say, hey, you know, while you're addressing the transparency problems at the State Department when it comes to foreign agreements, maybe we should also address the transparency problems that, that are arising in the trade space. So, so I see sort of those three different opportunities um, by which Congress and the executive could try to sort this out. Okay. So to kind of wrap this up, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about what you think comes next based on what you've learned so far. You've talked about how TEAs are hard to track down, often not made public, may never go out of force. So in that case, what do you think should come next in terms of how to assess and review them so we know what kind of economic impact they might have, we know how they're being implemented and enforced. So what comes next in terms of the interdisciplinary analysis that you think these need? And then following on that, what would be on your transparency wish list to help bring more of these to light? Um, you've mentioned that you know the Biden administration does not have an appetite really right now for the big comprehensive FTAs, so TEAs are going to continue. Um, they'd continue anyway, but they might right. um, continue to a greater degree. So what do you what do you think should come next in terms of both analysis of these as well as transparency? All right. Well, um, you, you're right. The finding them was the easy step in a way. Right? That, was, <laughs> that was just step one. Uh, and now there's all this space to talk about, you know, are they constitutional? What are they doing? How are they being implemented? All, all of that work remains to be done. So we're really just at the beginning, um, especially on the economic side. I'm glad you raised that. We, we need folks with those skills to take a closer look at these. Um, the ITC, the International Trade Commission, does some of that work for FTAs. You know, why not do that for TEAs too? Um, so we can now start to assess if this is the sort of trade relationship network that we want, right? In these small pieces with these partners, et cetera. Um, you asked about implementation. Um, and and if, you'll, if you'll permit me, I just one quick uh, minute on that, because yes, I think that is just another area that, that's understudied and, and requires a, a lot more attention. You know, we have a tendency as scholars, I'll you know, just to speak for my, my, my people, <laughs> uh, we have a tendency to focus on, on how we get into agreements and how we get out of them, right? So the entrance and the exit are very well-trodden territory. We spend much less time as researchers, and I think maybe also as, as the public, um, understanding how these agreements are managed while we're in them, right? while mm -hmm. they're in force. And, and so sort of, if we just sort of take a step back and, and look at this as you know, an agreement having a, a life cycle to it, but we could start to understand what happens in the in-between. Um, so implementation, it, it's a process, right? It's an exercise you hear a lot about when it comes to USMCA. This administration is, is adamant. We're going to make sure Mexico implements all of these pieces. You get the sense that implementation and enforcement sort of go hand in hand. When we talk about these big FTAs, uh, we could debate that you know, some other time. But when it comes to TEAs, implementation looks quite different. 
what, what actually happens when an agency goes out and negotiates one of these? Let, let's just take my Bolivian agreement example, right? One of those great 2020 agreements that I mentioned earlier. This is the one where USTR goes out and negotiates with Bolivia uh, this protection for the Bolivian spirit called Singani. So then what happens? Well, USTR could go tell the Treasury Department, which is the one that manages our distilled spirits uh, labeling regime, it could basically call up Treasury and say, hey, you know, we just negotiated this. Why don't you make this happen? And then Treasury's work begins, right? Treasury then has to decide how it's going to do that. Is it going to do a rulemaking like it normally does? Or is it going to find another way to give effect to the commitments in the agreement? Immediately, we've complicated the rulemaking and regulatory exercise through the negotiation of a TEA. Now, that complication may be intentional, it may be good, it may lead to better outcomes, but it absolutely disrupts what we previously understood to be the means by which we make cross-border rules, right? Until that TEA came along, the way to bring Singani into the labeling regime that Treasury manages was to do a notice and comment rulemaking. That's what the statutes that govern Treasury's work provides. Now you've got another source of law and figuring out what is the force of law of that source of law is going to become more important the more that we rely on these mini deals to achieve our foreign commercial outcomes. That their legal strength and the way they become part of US law is only going to grow in significance. Uh, and that's that's true not only for in trade, but, but in other areas of executive agreements as well. So I think you know, that could create problems, but it also could create opportunities for these different styles of administrative lawmaking. Uh, and that's why implementation is going to become more important. Uh, you asked about how to improve the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so look, you know, we, we wanna keep these. These are important tools. Right? They, they do good work uh, and, and you know, they can even be under the radar, right? They don't need that much publicity, uh, but they shouldn't be under the table, right? So mm-hmm. there are some small ways I think that we can deal with these surface level problems um, to, to keep these from being under the table. The, the first is, here we go, some low hanging fruit. Right, find them and, and make them available. Right, we've said USTR already has a critical mass. So we need to locate all those agreements that are not currently listed on the website, we need to digitize them and then create links, a, a simple landing page with links to all of the agreements that it already boasts uh, in, the, in the annual report would be, would be very helpful uh, to go on and collect those from other agencies would be still, still more helpful. Um, now, Doing that is, uh, as we've clearly identified, not uh, the easiest task. It may require resources. Um, it may require staff. Uh, USTR has a chief transparency officer, a position that was created a few years ago. And in its short lifetime, that role has been uh, assigned to the general counsel of USTR. Now, the general counsel of USTR has a really big job. So adding uh, tasks to that for that person's portfolio uh, on the topic of transparency is, is uh, perhaps too much, right? So it might be more useful to give that to somebody else, right? let somebody have their whole job be transparency, give them a staff and support them with the resources they need. We do not need to be adding to the busy plates of our trade policymakers uh, with the, the exercise of finding these. Um, and then Last, and what I think is the low-hanging fruit, is the reforming of this uh, reporting and publishing process. 
like just sort of sorting the fault lines that have developed within the executive branch on that. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, well, I mentioned earlier this, this whole controversy about the State Department's role in, in making transparent other types of agreements. Um, the, the transparency regime under which the State Department operates um, has some carve-outs, but actually most of these TEAs should probably qualify for the State Department system. And, and if they did, then they would be published and reported, right, if State Department was doing its work well. Um, but different interpretations have arisen over time as to whether these agreements do qualify for the State Department's regime. Plus, trade, you know, traditionally is somewhat exceptional in our foreign relations context, right? The, the trade agencies have a different reporting line. They don't report to Senate foreign relations. They report to Senate finance, right? Likewise, on the House side, House Ways and Means. So these sorts of divides have contributed to the problem so that neither the State Department system nor the trade agency system has proven adequate. Um, and so we need to resolve some of those, those differences within the branch. Uh, I think those are the relatively easy things that could be done. It's money, it's time, it's maybe a little bit of law, uh, but getting a better handle on these overall um, might take more time. We could just start with those simple steps. Okay, so what, what comes next in your research project, Kathleen? And then where can our listeners read more about your findings or where can we look for what you'll be publishing next? <laughs> oh, that's very uh, generous of you to, <laughs> to ask that, right? All, all of the work that we've uh, discussed today is available on a website near you. <laughs> you can you can find uh, some of this work on the uh, Social Science Research Network, the SSRN, which is where uh, many of us professors post our working drafts. So uh, download while it's hot, as they say, um, or, or you can just email me. I'm easy to find uh, on the internets and, uh, and I'm happy to send along these drafts. Uh, let me emphasize that, that draft point one more time that, that um, comments are welcome uh, on this project and on others that are in motion, especially tips and stories. And uh, sometimes I feel like an investigative journalist in that, some mm -hmm. aspects of this project. <laughs> um, but uh, but any any comments will do. Um, and you know what work is there still to be done? Well, there's there's a history to these that um, the current uh, project doesn't really get into. I mentioned that most of these are uh, from the last forty years. Uh, but you can find variations on what would what we would count as a TEA going back much earlier, right into the nineteenth century. Um, so so that's of interest. That that work um, has has not yet begun. Begun. What what has begun. Uh, is uh, the implementation piece. So I, I just gave you the little teaser trailer version, um, mm -hmm. but that uh, looking at the implementation of these agreements and others is, um, is what I'm working on uh, now. Uh, in addition to a couple other projects that may be of interest to, to listeners, although they're not uh, related to TEAs. One is um, I have an essay on uh, the worker-centered trade policy, what that means um, and, and where that might be headed. Uh, that links up to a broader project we're doing on, on train, trade and sustainability. Uh, so not just labor, but also environment development and, and much more. So that's uh, sort of bubbling now and, and uh, coming to fruition. Um, and finally, uh, I also do some work on, on trade and security and sort of emergencies, exceptions, and, and what that means for, for authority within the U.S. trade context. So, um, so that's another project that's, uh, that's underway. Okay, lots of irons in the fire. <laughs> um, last question for you, as I ask every guest on this podcast, what is something you've read lately, aside from the TEAs that you can find um, about trade, <laughs> book, article, report, something you've read lately? 
specifically about trade or foreign commerce that's been especially striking to you? Great. Well, um, so in the context of that uh, worker-centered trade policy research I've been doing, this work by Christoph Pelk, who is a Canadian, well, based in Canada, he's a political scientist, does work on all sorts of trade topics and then some, but he's done some great work together with co-authors and, and also on his own about trade adjustment assistance. Hmm. Um, and, and so I would offer that to listeners as a way to understand how that program works, that program, which is also lapsed, right? We talked about TPA mm-hmm. lapsing, TAA also has lapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that seems somewhat inconsistent, right? With the worker-centered trade policy, at least mm-hmm. to some, right? Other people mm-hmm. would say, oh, TAA never did us any good. Well, uh, Christoph's done the work to really see uh, whether TAA ever worked. Is that the way we should be supporting uh, communities who have been affected uh, by uh, trade effects um, uh, or who have been, uh, you know, in the context of, of globalization more generally. So um, I would submit that to you as, as worth reading. Christoph tweets about that as well, uh, and you can find it all, all there. Um, if you'll permit me, one other recommendation, yes. which is not a, a, an article uh, so much as a blog generally, um, that is the Afronomics blog has become uh, invaluable to my work in um, understanding not just what's happening on the African continent, but but much more broadly uh, tracking different sorts of trade institution experimentation uh, beyond trade. It, it's more than that. It's it's investment. It's sovereign debt. It's it's a lot. Um, and so if folks are not uh, keeping tabs on the Afronomics uh, blog and, and all the great resources that it has to offer, um, then I definitely make sure you do that. Terrific. Thank you, Kathleen. We'll be watching um, your continued progress with your research with a lot of interest here. And again, I just want to thank you for this really, really enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for being on this podcast today. Thank you so much, Jill. This is great. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Alex Wojcicki and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guest or host and to not the Geiger Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.